0: I love that um, Wizard of Oz feel, and it's just looming large. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us together. Lord, I thank you, Father, for our great time of celebration of your grace and your mercy in our life, Lord. And I thank you for the reminder that uh, you will have your praise whether we participate or not you will have your praise so even if we're silent you say that the rocks will cry out and we know lord even they do that all of creation points to the majesty of god but well, thank you lord for still raising up believers thank you lord for still calling uh, many of us together to be able to lift your name up to proclaim it to the world around us that you are great and you are faithful Lord, we just pray that as we tackle our, our text this morning, Lord, as we put our eyeballs on your word, Lord, that it would also penetrate our hearts and that um, our, our surrender to your word this morning, to your call in our life would be what leads our day, that leads our week and even transforms our life. So thank you, Lord, for meeting us today in Jesus' name, amen. Even God himself could not sink this ship. Those words sound familiar? Many of you know the story of the Titanic that took 12,000 people to build over two years. And their great hubris showed in that statement, even God himself, this thing is so safe, even God himself could not sink this ship. They were so confident in that they didn't even do lifeboat drills or any kind of preparations that what if they were wrong? They weren't going to be wrong, were they? Yes, they were. April 14th, 1912 at 1140 p.m. said, you are wrong. Here it brings to mind Proverbs sixteen eighteen that says pride goes before destruction. Our passage in Peter is coming to an end. Our letter that Peter sent us is wrapping up. And Peter has some very important instruction as he's winding it down, and he's going to emphasize this whole idea of how our pride gets in the middle of everything, how humility is such a a lost cause, it seems, that it's it's so far removed from the world around us. A couple of weeks ago, we were beginning in chapter 5, and we saw that the exhortation was towards the leadership of the church. In verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What does he say to the elders? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter is uh, putting weight and responsibility on the leadership of the church to be good examples, to shepherd the flock, and to prepare for the coming of the chief shepherd, the one that we will all give an answer to. And yet at the same time, he is also holding the church accountable to make sure that they are selecting and keeping an eye on that kind of leadership churches need good leaders but he's going to turn turn the page a little bit he's going to use the word likewise saying just as i instructed the shepherds to be cautious and to be an example likewise i'm going to put the responsibility on the church as well so as a church needs good leaders a church also needs good followers Peter is going to put his finger on this very important issue of humility and help us understand why it gets in the way of so many things that the Lord wants to accomplish and intends to accomplish in the church. And I think we're going to find some surprising connections to, um, from, from the pride that infects our lives to the things that follow us around or the things that plague us in our difficulties in life. We're going to look at just a few simple commands that come out of the next several verses. We've got kind of a big section to to tackle in terms of normally what we would accomplish in one time. We're going to see the rest of the letter out, Lord willing, if I can stay on track. But I want to pull out just a few simple statements, a few simple commands that I think Peter's giving us here. And we're going to begin in verse five, where he does say, likewise, in the same way that I instructed the elders to be an example, and to be humble about their approach. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Peter is simply saying, be humble. Sounds simple, right? There I am. (laughs) If you've ever been in the twilight zone, you know exactly what just happened to me. Fortunately, in a year of being on camera now and everything, I'm quite used to hearing the sound of my own voice. So be humble. Likewise, you who are younger, why is Peter picking on the younger you and i both know that in particular in our generation today that the younger generation is is loaded with creativity is loaded with accomplishment there are all the things that drive our industry now are so weighted with with technology and that seems to be led primarily through a younger generation we know that the energy and the creativity is there but peter is addressing what you and i have known from generation to generation those of us that have once been younger and now no longer are we know how we used to be. We had all the answers and we knew it. Right? And there's a lack of diplomacy, there's a lack of humility that often comes with age that eventually, prayerfully, hopefully, matures out of us. I remember so many conversations I've had with people I respected or people that were older than me, and I wanted to prove myself so badly to them that I knew what I was talking about, I knew the solution to the problem, and I would say things that, in hindsight, I look back and I go, how did they not blow me out of the water? because of their wisdom and their maturity and their patience with a much younger me they let me just say those things and i and i can and i can hear myself in the echo going boy you sound really smug and arrogant that's what happens With youth, And and so Peter is saying, you who are younger, even if you think they're washed up, even if you think they, they don't get it, respect the fact that they've been down the road, respect the fact that they have miles on them, respect the fact that they've seen a few things and weathered and endured a few things. You might have creativity and energy, but they have a wisdom you can't buy in your youth. So he says, you who are younger, show some respect, be humble to the elders. Then he says to clothe ourselves in humility And this. So there's this indication that's going on because he's saying that how we respond to leadership and humility really enhances growth and progress of the church. So if we say we know the church needs to go in a direction, how do we get there? We get there most efficiently, most effectively when there's a group of people that say we want to go too. you point out the right direction. You make sure we understand that it's from God and we're on board. We want to go. That kind of humility, that surrendering to leadership, if you will, is the kind of thing that accelerates the growth of the church. And I'm not just simply talking numerically. I'm talking about spiritual growth, but then there's a humility. There's a progress that happens with each other. When you and I clothe ourselves with humility, it begins to enhance fellowship. I don't know if you've noticed, but you like being around people that want to help you. Have you notice that I love people that want to help me in life. They're my best friends. Some of my best friends are going, I know, and he never stops asking for help. (laughs) They regret becoming my best friends. We exercise towards each other this humility that starts to sound like what Paul said in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Both Paul and Peter are saying to a culture, a Greco-Roman culture, a concept that is very distasteful. It was all about conquer. It was all about pride. It was all about status and prestige. It permeated their culture. And here, these guys come along and say, literally go put on a slave's apron and serve those around you. Imagine the idea, where does that come from, that these guys would get the idea to say, you know how we're going to crack open this culture? You know how we're going to turn this thing upside down? You know how we're going to accelerate the growth of the church in this in this culture? We're going to tell them to go put on the mask. We just got through Halloween. We're going to have them go put on the mask of the image that is most distasteful to them. What kind of growth strategy is that? Where do these guys get this idea? Peter got this idea. From being with Jesus. In John chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, the writer of our letter that we're studying, who said to him, Lord, I don't think so. Do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I'm doing, you don't understand right now, but afterward, you'll, you'll get it, Peter. Peter said to him, no, 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 you don't get the dynamic. You will never wash my feet. Lord, Master, Messiah, no. And Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, you have no part or partnership or share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, okay, change the tune then, not just my hands, get my, get. I mean, not just my feet, get my hands, get my head, whatever, Lord, you need to wash, please do so. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So Jesus um, uh, extends the metaphor to help us understand what he's talking about spiritually is those that have surrendered their heart to the saving power of the Lord Do not need to continue to redo that saving is for saving. But we we walk this earth. We put on these miles. We trip over ourselves in sin. And so that that cleansing is all that's needed for followers of Christ. The picture of humility is Jesus getting up from supper. He's the one that is going to lay down his life for all of them. Instead, he takes his apron, ties it around and starts washing their feet in a custom that showed great service. Here's what I want you to think about. Everyone wants to be thought of as a servant until they're actually treated like one. I want you to think I'm willing to serve you. I want you to think I would give you the shirt off my back. I would help you at the drop of a hat. All the expressions that we like to categorize with other people that we know are like this. I want you to think that of me. But the second you treat me as though you expect me to. That's not how this works. C.J. Mahaney, in a tiny little humble book called Humility, <laughs> he says, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. I would say it a little bit differently. I would say humility is simply acknowledging the truth of what is, which is our weakness, our sinfulness, our inability to be as good as we think we are, rather than living in the fantasy Of what is not. We live in a fantasy of our own power, our own control, our own ability to order life and the world around us the way we want to. It's not true. So Peter is saying that we have to clothe ourselves with humility. So the adverse of that is there must be a warning about pride. And certainly it follows at the second part of verse five and verse six. He says, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So pride is opposed. That's something you and I need to lock in our brains right now. Do you like being on the side of God or do you like being opposed to God? And this is a clear area where the scriptures have warned us over and over and over again what God opposes, primarily even in the Proverbs. Here's a couple for you. 11-2. Scripture says, when pride comes, then comes Disgrace but with the humble is wisdom. 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. There's a warning to us here that pride is such a, a, a subtle danger because it's, it's isolating. You've been around people who are proud. You've been proud yourself. You know what I'm talking about when I say that we make the statement or we hear others make the statement, I'm better than everybody else. Even if they're smart enough to not say it out loud, you know that all their concerns, all their fixations, all those sorts of things are all about them. So everyone else's problems pale in comparison. I'm better than others. But it's also dangerous because as we just saw, it's embattled. God is opposing the proud. You know what that means? It means that he resists the proud with assembled forces is what's going on in that language. It's bad enough just having God against you, but then he gathers an assembly of forces and says, move against this person's pride. We're not going to tolerate that. And as we're going to see in our passage later on, that pride is deadly because Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If we're being honest, as pride is speaking in our lives, and if we're going to reinterpret the warning that we were given about humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, what our pride really sounds like is something like this. Exalt yourself under the mighty hand of me so that at the most embarrassing time, according to the Proverbs warning, you may be humiliated. That's really what we need to start saying in in, in in understanding that to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God means that at the proper time, he will exalt. Now, there is a connection that we're going to see here as we go to verse seven. We've just talked about how we need to clothe ourselves in humility. The warning is that God opposes the opposite of that, which is pride. And that we have to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And then in verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. My my first read through or the times that I've understood this passage, I almost disconnected those thoughts and thought that he's dealing with pride and humility. Now he's dealing with worry and anxiety. You know, two of the probably the greatest plagues in our society today in our hearts. You know somebody, if not yourself, who's racked with anxiety, especially as 2020 has gone on. We know that anxiety is everywhere and there's always a promise of a medication or a solution or a silver bullet or something and it eludes us. We, we still continue to walk in anxiousness. But I don't think Peter is separating these thoughts. I don't say, I don't think he's saying, okay, so deal with your pride and humility. Now let's talk about worry and anxiety. I think he's giving us a clue that one feeds the other. How does pride instigate anxiety? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's define worry and see if this helps us out. The reason why I think that there's pride in anxiety is because worry is when concern crosses a sinful line of obsession with outcomes. When you and I worry, we start thinking there's a, a preferred outcome, and I hope it comes, I hope it comes, I hope it comes, I hope it comes. Anybody thinking mostly about Tuesday? You see, worry is concern for the wrong day. What am I supposed to do about my worries for Tuesday or next Sunday or next year or my retirement or any of those kinds of things? What am I supposed to do about those things today? Worry is concern, which is godly. Worry is concern for the wrong day. And when Peter says that uh, that you he, because he cares for you and we're casting all of our anxieties or cares, what's going on here in the language is this idea of having a split mind. When we see cares, it's related to our brains being divided. And some of you are hearing the, the words of James in chapter 1, verse 8, that says, A double-minded man is unstable. He's shaky in all of his ways. Our worry, our anxiety is being fueled with pride that says, I can fix next week's problems. I can fix next year's problems. I deserve those things to be satisfi- satisfactory to me now. But all that that does is it, it separates our mind. It, it, it puts us on shaky, unstable ground. Our worry has this subtle voice of pride that if we stop we listen to it, In the midst of our anxiety, we say, what am I really saying here? We're saying, I can or I should be able to fix this. I should have the control that I desire for the issues of my life or the circumstances of my life to go my way. Or the subtle voice of pride in our anxiety could sound like, I deserve a better outcome. What did I do to deserve this? Again, it's more about what I need, what I deserve. Or as we've already covered, worry can also sound like other people's problems are not my biggest concern. I've got my own fish to fry. Fortunately for you and me, because we believe in a gospel of grace, even in the midst of our anxieties and our worries, there is a voice of God that comes through that is more hopeful and healing to us. Instead of this, um, I should have control and I should be able to fix this, we start hearing a God that says, I am Your mighty hand. This mighty hand comes from the Old Testament. It's a term that that talks about God being a deliverer, rescuing people from the clutches of destruction. That's God's job, not ours. How many times have we tried to get ourselves out of a jam and it just doesn't work? Don't we often make the problem worse? Sometimes the voice of grace that comes through our worry is, I give you what you need and that's enough. Stop wishing, asking, needing more. What I give you because I'm a God of provision, I give you what you need at the time that you need it. And then God comes through with a gentle reminder in his voice of grace saying, you know, others are suffering too. And what I'm doing in your life right now is equipping you to be an instrument in their life. That all of this that you're feeling, all of this that you're going through isn't even all about you. It's about what you can be for them. This is why the psalmist says in 9419, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. These are the voice of, these are the voices of consolation that we get from our loving father. This is what he does in the midst of our worry. If we allow him. So Peter is saying be humble. And we could spend weeks on how to get there or why it's a problem or where it shows up in our lives and in our society. But I think for now we have to understand that Peter is saying in the end times as things are scattering and separating and and spreading all out church. Be humble. Prepare for your suffering. Prepare for your difficulty with humility. Secondly, I think he's saying that we need to be watchful. Let's go to verses eight and nine. He says, be sober minded. This sounds reminiscent to what we saw in chapter four, where he was talking about sobriety and how we have to have our minds clear to be engaged in the mission at hand. He says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This might sound contradictory. It might not sound like what we would normally hear behind a pulpit, but it's time you and I get to know the devil. What? How much Halloween candy did you have last night, Brent? This is what Peter is triggering us. He says, pay attention, be on the alert, study your enemy a little bit, get to know what you're up against. Dare I say, respect him. Now, respect is not the same as reverence. I I do once in a while, I do some very lightly non-dangerous kinds of electrical things on my own house. You know, I have a tendency to, you know, make sure over and over again I'm checking the breakers, and I only do that now since I only almost electrocuted one of my friends, but. Actually, I I did electrocute him, he just pulled away quick enough, so. Did you flip that switch? Yes, I did. I flipped that switch. No you didn't. You see, there's a, there's a respect that you can have for the thing that wants to kill you. It's possible. Scripture calls the devil the destroyer. Scripture calls the devil the accuser. What does he destroy? He destroys, of course, our relationships. He flushes our cash down the tube. He steals our status and our positions. He will even rob us of the very air that we breathe and snuff out our lives. And he certainly wants to separate us from God for all of eternity. He's not playing games. He's not walking around in a little uh, red suit with a pitchfork tail and all these things. Some of you are of a generation, you don't even know what I'm talking about. He's not just all horns and pitchforks. We respect him almost like reaching out for that live wire going, I don't know what this is going to do to me. I hope I took the precautions not to die from this. We need to understand that sin is going to keep us longer than we want to stay and it will cost us more than we want to pay. That is the reality of playing around with the devil. So Peter is saying respect him. He's saying recognize him. The scripture says that he's the great pretender. He never comes looking the way he truly is. He is amazing at masking himself. So he he is darkness that comes in light. He is death that looks like life. He's all of those deceiving presentations that so many people just take for granted and say, well, come on, how bad can he be? Looks like a nice enough guy. He's the great pretender. We need to learn to recognize where he's at work and where he, he is present. And then according to to Peter and James and so many authors in the scripture, we simply need to resist him. When you picture resist, don't you picture someone pushing up against a force? Resisting isn't just kind of standing still and relaxed and off your weight or off your balance. Resist is this kind of thing of like, hold it back because he is so persistent. He will not rest until he's taken us down. And it's not because he has something against you. Particularly, he doesn't like the God that you serve. He doesn't like the fact that your life will bring him ultimate glory. And so if he can take you out of the equation, it's one less person that is praising his ultimate enemy. So many times as I'm working with people that are they're, they're turning a corner, a light has gone on, their heart is awakened to all that the Lord can do, and they're starting to walk in that newfound excitement, and they're starting to see that. I'm, I always have to be the bummer and say, now listen, I want you to be joyful. I want you to be excited, but you need to be vigilant. Because you're so close to being knocked off this path because you're, you're weak in this. This is all new to you. And all you're feeling like is you're running on adrenaline right now, but you need to know that the devil is after you because he thought he had you. And now you're proving otherwise by the grace of God. He's not letting go of you yet. He hasn't just oh, lost another one and moves on. Doesn't it seem so often when we're accomplishing So much obvious to us in the Lord, we're going, boy, that was a really great uh, uh, situation I had with that person, or I prayed for those people, or I went and served in this particular area of need, Lord, this feels good to be in your will, and all these other things start happening. We go, where's this coming from? I'm not claiming that it's all the devil, like he's there or at your house with a pitchfork. But, but Peter is saying he walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What is the, the barbecue sauce on the ribs that the lion likes? It's pride. As you and I slip into this this um, self-absorbed, self um, self-focused, and self-centered manner of life, and how we see how everything affects us, he's just pouring on that sauce. Boy, that guy's gonna be tasty. But hopeful to you and I is that while the devil does have great power, why he while he is one to be respected one to be recognized and one to be resisted, he is still a roaring lion at the end of God's leash. That the Lord has got him held. And all that he wants to do in our lives still answers to one who can tame him. So you and I are not in this battle alone. And I think that's what leads into Peter's final piece of instruction for us here in verse 10, which is simply not just be humble, Not just be watchful, but be hopeful. Remember, he's talking to these people that are scattered, discouraged, uh, homeless in a spiritual sense. And so his whole theme of the letter was a living hope. And so he's picking this up here in verse 10 by saying, and after you've suffered a little while, think about how offensive that statement might sound. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore There's so many hopeful elements that Peter is dropping in this paragraph. He's saying that our suffering, the things that we are enduring, even presently, have a limit. He says, little while. What does little mean in the Greek? Little bit. Puny. It's literally what it means. This puny period that you're going through has an end date. It will expire. We don't know what that date is. That's where God's grace comes in to help us endure until it comes. But that's a very hopeful statement to us. We get in our own head and get discouraged in our own flesh, and we think, this is my sentence in life. Nowhere for me to go. This is all I have, all I get. Peter says, the suffering you're enduring is puny compared to all that eternity affords us then he says, our grace, this true grace of God, he says, everything I've written to you over these five chapters, they weren't chapters to him, but all the things that I've written to you represent the true grace of God. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, recognize this is not your home, that you're preparing for a real one to come, that this is sort of a, a practice run. This is an opportunity to, to shed the grace of God, to pr- proclaim his name and that in your suffering in your submission to those in authority around you that you will be um uh, elevated you will be you will be strengthened you will be built up and that all of this comes to an end all of these themes Peter says as I'm writing to you are the true grace of God which means God is the one that supplies the ability to do these things you and I can't just today or tomorrow go okay I'm going to be humble I'm going to be more humble I'm going to endure. I'm going to, we could do that for a little bit. Can't we? It's like exercise, dieting, all this sort of stuff. We can kind of, we just get this shot of motivation and we kind of, and then after a while it doesn't stick. Why? Because our heart hadn't been transformed to receive this new opportunity. Our hearts haven't been transformed to, to see our new responsibility or, or even to accept the fact that what I'm about to surrender to what I'm about to do is something that gives glory and honor to someone more important than me. I'm not in this for me. God's grace abounds. Also, look at these four verbs he gives us to help us understand that God is the one that does the job. He finishes the work. He says, he himself will restore us, confirm us, strengthen and establish. All of these words have to do with like placing us on a firm foundation to 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 anchoring our feet in a way that will not move. I remember being in college and I had a professor that would... I've told you a little bit about him, the legend of Mike Patterson. And, and he'd be at seven in the morning. You know, we'd have us great, whether it was an English literature class or it was something that had to do with uh, uh, church history or something. He's taught a few different subjects. He'd always be pacing like this. We'd come in the room. He'd be like, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We're like, oh, it's going to be a good day. He's fired up. He's ready to go. I remember one day. Way before we had had any coffee or anything like that, we're all just like this. And by the time his lecture was done, he says, I want you preachers to get the spikes in the big hammer and nail them down between your toes and your shoes. So when the wind's blowing, you're saying, I'm not going anywhere. We're like, where does this guy get his energy? He was amazing. But I remember that because there's this element of endurance, there's um, uh, this element of, of keeping our foundation firm in the commitments that the Lord gives us the grace to make. He will restore us, he will confirm us, strengthen and establish us. I love how Peter includes the bigger picture here. As a hopeful statement, he says, the church, she, the bride of Christ, who is at Babylon, which isn't an exact location that would be of, you know, located near Baghdad and things. But he's saying the representation of that system that's against God. It's kind of like how you and I use the phrase Hollywood. Well, we know what Hollywood thinks. We're not necessarily just talking about its location on the map. We're talking about a system of mindset and things. Babylon represents in the scriptures all of the, all of the thought and the ideology that is against the will of God. And so he's saying she, the, the church who is planted there in Rome, who's facing Babylon head on, who are likewise chosen just like you guys are. You're all in it together. They said, Hey, they said, Hi, hang in there, guys. It's not a very, brilliant statement it's nothing that just says oh and they said all of these sorts of things they just wanted you to know we're still here still out there we know how important it is in our isolation to get a sense of connection by the fact that other people get it and they're in it with us this is why peter is saying be hopeful so what is he saying to us in these many verses He's saying to pursue a path toward humility in the midst of our suffering. How do we do that? We kill our pride. We recognize that pride is the cancer that is trying to kill us. How do I kill my pride? We need to start getting more honest with how we confess our pride. If we even confess our pride, let's start there admit that the things that we do to one another, some of the fights that we have with one another, and we just chase that back towards source. and You're like, I was looking out for me. The reason why I freaked out with about you over what toppings we get on the pizza really had more to do with me. I don't see you as the great pizza enemy in my life. And yet somehow I escalated you to that position. You see, and you go, come on, you don't really talk like this. Not really. But you see, sometimes I don't really have to in my marriage when we start to recognize how prideful we really are on the bigger things. And we start to see that they have a source in all of the smaller things as well. Someone had given me the phrase this week that when we are professing or confessing our pride, what we're really confessing is that we are contending for the supremacy of God. The next time you, in your subtle arrogance, even if it doesn't look like it on the outside, the next time it's that headbutt, the next time it's that I've made my own needs more important than someone else's, and the next time you find yourself in that, in that area, I want you to mentally picture Jesus sitting on a throne in the middle of your mind, and you saying, hey, could you get out of there for a second? That seat looks comfortable. I want to try that. I want to sit in this throne and see how it feels. I want to get all comfortable here, because you know what? I got this thing called my life. I can figure it out. You keep making me humble. You keep leading me in ways to get me kicked in the teeth. You keep telling me to surrender and submit and all these other unattractive things. I'm sick of it. Get out of my seat. Now we're going, hey, come on. Who in the world would ever have the guts to say that? You and I, every day. The prophet Habakkuk after having his own fits with that in the beginning of his letter that we see, comes to this point at the towards the end of chapter 2 and shares one of the most profound, kind of awe-inspiring passages of Scripture. After he's kind of said, God, what are you up to? Why doesn't it go this way? How come you're not doing things my way? He comes to this statement and says in 2.20, he says, But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. Picture. Lord, who do you think you are? Why don't you ever? When are you gonna? And he says, let me talk to you for a second. And then our heads just dropped. I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. It got away from me. I didn't mean to be that person. That's how we would feel. It's what we would do if we were talking to him face to face. So we kill pride in our lives. We also learn to care more about salvation than just simple relief. In other words, if God is doing this big picture thing on the earth, in our lives, in our families or something, then my suffering or my inconvenience now becomes a part of the thing that helps the overall cause. So I'm not just begging God for my relief. I'm begging God to be a part of this big thing that he's he's about to accomplish. I care more about salvation than my own personal relief. And then I learned to wait quietly for the Lord to work. And this is more than just a resignation of, all right, fine, I'll give up. I won't think about it anymore. No, it's just, all right, Lord, while I wait for your answer, while I wait for your outcome to play, what is, what am I supposed to be concerned about today, not worried about for tomorrow? And then probably the toughest thing for us to do, which we can actually do, this isn't just a a feelings-driven thing, is to humbly rejoice celebrate what God has actually done before or beyond your current trouble. If you're in the midst of something now and you say, I'm really having a hard time getting the praise out. Think about historical God in your life. Think about historical God in in not only your own life, but in the lives of all the generations that have led up to you being able to hear the truth of the gospel. Think about what he's going to do after he gets you through this season. We don't feel like doing that. We want to wallow. But this is how we start combating these things. We start to celebrate the freedom that we've been given in Christ. Even the freedom that our sin has has said, you do not deserve this grace. See how humility comes back. Even in the midst of our worry, we say, okay, Lord, I know I don't deserve a rescue from this. What I deserve is a lot worse than what you've given me. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. How far less are the greatest afflictions that we meet within this world than we have deserved? It'd be amazing turnabout in our lives if we spent a little bit more time thinking about the destruction we haven't experienced as a result of God's grace. So we are pursuing a path toward humility in the midst of our suffering, and we're combating worry by humbly accepting that you and I, we can't fix everything. We don't have the strength, the tools, the all those sorts of things. We're not God. We've heard over and over and over again the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. We've heard that, right? Imagine if we started changing the way that that sounds. We say, God helps those who humble themselves. I don't know how to help myself. All of my best thinking has got me where I am right now. Make your requests known to God. Dwell on the truth of his word and discern between real and false problems. There are some real biggies in our lives, but there's a lot of false ones that we make real biggies in our lives. Lord, by your spirit, give me discernment on the things that need to be majored on and what things need to be minored on. And humility produces an eventual exaltation, according to Peter's. Description is, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time you will be exalted. So humility produces an eventual exaltation while pride produces an eventual humiliation. The path towards exaltation starts for all believers by heading towards the bottom. You see, Peter knows what he's talking about here. The author of our letter was so wrecked by his distance from the glory of God, was so um, undeserving in his own appreciation for who he was. The fact that the Lord would even give him not just another chance, but a million other chances. That he said when he knew it was his time to lay his life down, when they were going to come and, and condemn him and crucify him, he says, not the way my Lord went. Put me upside down. You see, the author of our letter said, I don't even deserve To be held in that kind of honor. Mine needs to be worse than Jesus. Where does that kind of humility come from? If you know Peter's life, he doesn't start off that way, does he? All of his statements are big and braggadocious and center of attention. And you can count on me stuff till he comes to the point where he says, no, I start at the place of humiliation. When when it's proper time, when God wants to, I'll be exalted. Who are we talking about 2000 years later? As a faithful man, Peter, because he chose humility after being broken by the grace of God and responding in kind. It's my prayer that we as a people will live by God's word. That's what our emphasis is going to be going forward. How do we live by God's word that we live with God's people? We need to do this together and we begin to live for God's mission as he places it before us. Would you stand and Let's close our time in prayer. Actually, hold up on one second. Let me ask for some instruction. Communion first, or are we worshiping? I knew going into this, I, there was a couple of details I didn't figure out first. So we, do our, we are going to take uh, time for communion. So I didn't want you to stand too early. Let's close in prayer. I'm going to turn both locations over to our elders who are going to walk us through our time around the Lord's table. God, I want to thank you, Lord, for this um, sobering truth in your word that we are not uh, islands unto ourselves, that we are not kings of our own domain. Lord, we know that's the reality, but we don't live like it. So humble us, help us to see, Lord, your rule in our life, and that it's a rule of grace. It's a rule of provision. It's It's a rule of comfort and forgiveness. Help us, Lord, not to fight against you. Put us in our place, Lord, so that we could be more effective, not knowing the days ahead, Lord, not knowing what else you have coming for us in the end of 2020 or even in 2021. Lord, may we pursue whatever comes our way as humble people, humble children of you so that others will look and see what it looks like to not be shaken so that we wouldn't be a divided mind, that we would be settled and established in you. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.